Welcome to Logistics with Purpose, presented by Vector Global Logistics in partnership with Supply Chain Now. We spotlight and celebrate organizations who are dedicated to creating a positive impact. Join us for this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the origin stories, change-making progress, and future plans of organizations who are actively making a difference. Our goal isn't just to entertain you, but to inspire you to go out and change the world. And now, here's today's episode of Logistics with Purpose. Good day. My name is Enrique Alvarez. I'm the host of Logistics with Purpose. Today, we have a very, very special guest with us. And of course, I have a, a really, really good co-host with me as well. Maureen, how are you doing? Good. good how afternoon. are you, Enrique? I'm doing great. So um, I guess without further ado, um, have you had a good week so far? I have. We had a little bit of hurricane cleanup from uh, Hurricane Ian barreling through. Not like anything like Florida, but put my kids to work yesterday, um, picking up pine cones and branches. So I think yeah. we're, we're all good so far. It was a terrible storm. So yes, hearts and yeah. prayers to everyone in Florida. Um, and today, again, we have a really good friend, uh, really, really amazing guest working with a great company. And uh, we're really pleasure to have him here. So Christopher Husseini, Senior Manager Sales at Hapak Lloyd. Chris, how are you doing today? Good morning. Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you, Enrique and Maureen, for even having me. I'm humbled and I uh, really like the partnership we have with Vector going on at Hapak Lloyd and and really great to see you in this venue again. We, we love working with, uh, with your team. You guys have a very, very strong team, and uh, we appreciate everything you guys do. And we'll get a little bit more into that throughout this interview, but I just want to make sure that uh, to thank you uh, for everything that, that you guys uh, do. Thank you so much. Uh, and yeah, and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, Chris, to break the ice a little and start us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, um, your childhood, any fun stories you like to share? Yeah, okay. I, I'm originally I'm from Miami, Miami, Florida, and born and raised. I went to uh, high school there, and I even went to University of Miami for my undergraduate degree. Uh, I had a good childhood. My father worked for the government, uh, the local government in IT and so forth, and my mom was a nurse. And uh, my father's half, well, he passed one, uh, one about 12 years ago, actually. But he was per Persian. He was from Iran, came in the early 70s, and my mom's American. And Miami is a very uh, culturally eclectic place. And a lot of people think it's mainly Hispanic, but it's a lot more diverse than that. So I have really all my friends are from everywhere in the world. They were all kind of hybrids or, or whatnot of everything. And I'd say the childhood was good. Miami's changed a lot. And I was living there from the, I was born in the late 70s. So from that time to what it is now, it's obviously evolved. Uh, in many ways. Uh, and I was probably one thing that stands out, probably one of the most indelible memories is you're speaking about hurricanes. I was 15 when Hurricane Andrew wow. hit us. And I was living in a house we had moved in maybe within six months. And it was, I thought it was some brave kid and I'm going to sleep in my room. And my mom was crying saying, no, we all have to sleep in the hall. We didn't know what a hurricane was or what it would be like because it was the first in our lifetime. And they convinced me to sleep in the hall. And it was a good thing because the roof in my room collapsed and I probably would not have made it. And then, you know, during the storm, we wow. had to run across because the windows broke and yeah. the rain and the wind. And it was insane. We went into my parents' bedroom, uh, master closet, 
And we were all, except for my dad, crying like babies. And my dad wanted to cry. I saw it in his eyes. And it was kind of like torture. It felt like, I don't know what war is like. I've never been in it. But it was four hours and we had the eye come over and then like another four hours. And I lived in a hotel for like three months. And uh, it was a really, really interesting experience. And it was one I remember uh, in in quite some detail. So I'd say that's kind of on the the negative side. But I think with the positive that comes out of it, you realize how kind of fortunate we are. We always take things uh, for granted, at least from my perspective, uh, uh, it's human nature. And just uh, I I think that experience and some others going through and growing up in Miami, it, it was good. And I miss home a little bit, quite candidly. So, Chris, wow. when you were growing up, did you, uh, your family ever go back and visit where your dad was from? No, I, ironically, I recently got uh, a passport from Iran, but uh, it's due to an inheritance and all of that. But I've never been there okay. uh, for a number of reasons, you know, with the government, with all of that yeah. going on. And even though I don't speak Farsi, I'm an American, I've never spoke, uh, I am considered a citizen and could go in the military and all of that. And I would like, I like history. Is that how Iran works? Is it dual citizenship they allow you to have because of? They don't recognize the U.S. It it goes off the blood of the father. So unfortunately, it's a little archaic or maybe a lot. Well, I think Brazil does that, but with the mother, I believe. Oh, interesting. Yeah. A friend of mine, her kids are like Brazilian. She has a Brazilian passport because her mom is from Brazil, but she's from the U.S., Interesting. Kids as well. So I think every country has a, a different thing, but I was just curious because it's, you know, like yeah. you said, Miami is a really, uh, you know, culturally eclectic place, which would be very interesting to grow up there because you're just exposed to so many different things when yeah. it, it opens your eyes up at an early age, which um, I would, I would argue we need a lot more of that. And, uh, but travel, I'm sure anywhere is, is pretty expensive. So I wasn't sure if you were able to make it back there. If you're yeah, I had never been there. I wasn't born there. I was born in Miami. So I've never, I've never been there. At some point, if things get better, I'd like to go. I like history. Yeah. There's a great history and the people are good people. There's good food and all of that. Uh, you know, uh, the government, not so much from my perspective, at least. So. Right. But that's, well, that's a, that's an incredible story. And uh, I was just going to ask you for, for a story that shaped who you are. I don't know if that one is one that actually um shaped who you are and what you have become now but if there's any other that you might remember like growing up early days in Miami with your parents and um your family is there yeah. anything else that started pushing you towards uh yeah you know there's a probably a couple things you know one I don't often talk about most people don't know about me I was a really late bloomer so when I was in high school I looked like I was probably eight nine years old <laughs> I was I'm not kidding at first, before I went to private school, I went to a public school for a year and a half. And I was the third shortest kid out of 4,000 people. 4,000. Well, and I laugh because class. I was that kid too, by the way. Yeah. So I really remind me of my upbringing as well. Ricky's so, having flashbacks ahead. over there. Yes, that's what, that's what <laughs> oh, I laughed. starting to swear <laughs> <right here. laughs> So I'd say that kind of had an effect on me. So it was the kind of thing, the girls would pinch my cheeks that I'm a little kid. Maybe I didn't really get so much bullied, but what I think in retrospect, I really was forced to develop my personality of how to engage others, how to realize that a lot of people getting to know, you know, almost the saying that you get to know more people in uh, two months, 
by being genuinely interested in them by then by trying to get them interested in you. And I think that whole psychological element allowed me later in life to connect better with people and maybe make it a little bit, if there is some degree of a natural in, in sales and business and the human relationship aspect, I think it it's that if I go back to that. So I, I think that has some shape in it, in my life. Um, I was in Shotokan karate for nine years and my, oh, nice. yeah, my best friend, his father was uh, one of the highest ranked. He was Mr. Japan twice is uh, still alive. Wow. Shion Sugimoto. He taught Schwarzenegger for total recall, did the Miami vice fight quarter wow. anyway, but very tough. And, you know, part of the reason, I guess I was small and I got set here. <laughs> so I didn't get picked on. Right. Right. And I think the discipline on that was really, really good because it helped me in school and university to a high degree because it's like oh this is nothing i have to do this right right and then i'd say kind of uh in a difficult one was i i mentioned my father he died when he was young 61 wow and that was a very very difficult thing because he was my best friend but i'd say the gift he gave me when he passed away was the fact that probably not many days are going to be as bad so that was my bottom right? That's how I felt the bottom was. So everything, no matter what a bad day, what a hard challenge or whatever, it's all relative. And uh, it's not yeah. that big a deal. I'm able to recover. And I've, I've noticed that uh, many times in life of different things, sometimes difficult things, right? Wow. Right. But it puts things into perspective for yeah. sure, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does. Well, if you could turn back time and talk to your 21-year-old self, what would you tell him? Well, uh, Probably a lot. There's a lot I would definitely tell him. <laughs> it's your top three. <laughs> the top three. Okay. I'd say or one of them, obviously knowing what I know now, which I didn't in terms of even spending more time with my father. I was the kind of guy, particularly in university, every winter, every summer, I was traveling Europe. Maybe when kids are spending money on their car, or the rims, I was like, forget it. I'm going to Europe. I love to travel. I, I love that. So I was doing that a lot. And I was away a lot of those times. So maybe I want to scale that back a little bit. Uh, I think also probably telling myself that time goes by quick and the older I get, the quicker it goes by. So I think probably I would have invested in a lot of different ways, knowing what I know uh, and knowing that it'll get there. I'd say that in terms of the kind of investment. And then I think in the professional, I'd probably tell myself, and it took me a little bit later in, in, in life, probably my early mid thirties to really realize, sadly, it doesn't even matter, at least in a large corporation, from my perspective, being effective is very important, but your brand also matters, yeah. right? So making sure, I remember when I had first started uh, in this industry, I was young, mid-20s, I, I was good in my job, but there was a few times even on a th night on Friday, like I was, uh, uh, you, you know, not sleeping really well. And those kind of things could affect one's image, even though the effect is there, right? And, and that's something I learned a little bit later that it, it's right or wrong. Perception uh, perception is viewed as important, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I couldn't agree with you more, right? Effectiveness is definitely critical, but everyone has its own personal brand. And then companies have their brands as well. And they're getting more important, I think. Uh uh, and I think they'll be critical uh, going forward. Now, if we switch gears a little bit and just tell us a little bit more about your professional journey, and and we'll talk a little bit more about Hapag Lloyd and and your career path with them. But before that, tell us a little bit more how you kind of started looking to logistics as a as a potential career path. 
Yeah, it's a good question. And it's probably not the traditional one. I'd love to say it was planned and it was all, that's not how it happened. So <laughs> no, no one gets into logistics like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then you never want to get out of it. That's the thing. You that's get into true. it by accident, but then you don't want to leave it. <laughs> it's kind of like the Godfather three. They you try to get out and they pull you back in. Right? <laughs> I don't think that's the... So I would say, you know, after you, I graduated University of Miami, as I mentioned, and I also mentioned, I love to travel. So I found a really interesting way to get my father's approval to be in Europe, but under a good thing. I got into a really good school in, in England for my master's. But, you know, the main, and it was in computer science, something disparate for my study, but it was good. It was highly ranked. I went to University of York there in York, nice. uh, United Kingdom. And, uh, and it was only a year. So the sell is, hey, it's a good school. I'm continuing my education. I'll have a master's. It's one year. And then, of course, I loved, I got to also travel to Europe, and it was a phenomenal experience. I had friends from all over the world, super multicultural, friends to this day from all over. And then I came back, and, I, you know, probably not unlike a lot of people, I thought I was going to light the world on fire. And I went to start this company that the idea was good. And it was basically, without exaggerating, it was the precursor to Airbnb, but 10 years before, because again, me traveling would always stay in rentals, apartment rentals, wherever in Europe, because I always liked the space, the flexibility, all of these things. How could we have the renters and, and the host and assign them? And there was a series of misfortunes that occurred and then it didn't work out, right? I'd say one is funding, development. Uh, we had a developer, unfortunately, he was a uh, 47-year-old vegetarian that died of a heart attack. But I'd also, if I'm putting blame also myself, I'd say I probably didn't really fully have the grit that was needed to stay the course. So it didn't work out. And probably after six months of partying on South Beach, my father's like, you have a master's son, you need to get a job. <laughs> that's, right. So I, I started off in Evergreen. I didn't know, uh, really think about probably like most people out of the industry. How does our clothes, how does really most commodities get from here to there? didn't really put a lot of thought to it. And that's kind of how I fell into it. Wow. That's uh that's, you're right. Not a very common uh, path towards logistics. So we just really, we're looking for a job. Evergreen offered it and that was it. But isn't it weird now that like you, you know, you started with Evergreen, you weren't thinking about like how do things get from A to B, right? But now that's all you think about. You're like, oh, I wonder how that got there or you yeah. know, it's like, how did I not think of that before? And now I always feel I get caught up in that sometimes. Yeah, it's really interesting, like how much, I guess in anything, whether it's how much of it relies on kind of timing and luck, how much is that intersection? It's an interesting point. Yeah, I agree. Chris, do you still have that kind of uh, entrepreneurship bug in you? I mean, it seems like you've been very entrepreneurial. and and I guess, hey, Airbnb, that's a that's Well, it didn't work out. They, they, They made it happen, but yeah. Uh, it was a great idea, though. I mean, super validating the fact that uh, someone else ran with it. But it goes to show that it's not just the idea. And it's other right. Yeah, I'd say I do. But one thing I've certainly learned, in it, and I guess I also learned the hard way, it's probably better not to put all your eggs in one basket. Do something so you're secure. And then, you you know, if something takes off, then you can make that decision later. That's probably how I, I, I would do it. But I'd say that's the drive I have. I've stayed in the business side and in, in, in Hapag and all of that. and. Uh, you know, I, I, the foray is into that, into channel that, the hunger, the fun, the winning. I love that aspect. I, so is that how, when you were at Evergreen and then later when, when you were at Hapag or still are at Hapag, mm-hmm. how did you 
get into the sales aspect of it? Is yeah, it's a good question. So I started off actually in sales. I started okay. off in uh, I was in inside sales for a little bit less than a year, and uh, I remember there was a senior rep that left, and I got my opportunity. Um, and you know, I guess I was doing well, and they put trust in me. And I remember, and a lot of things come back to my father. I, you know, I was a young kind of somewhat a young kid there, and I remember even asked my dad, "Should I go ahead and take it?" I guess on the confidence, and he basically says, "Chris, you're you're a hardworking guy." In life, it's always better to say yes. And if you don't like it, you could always go back. And sometimes you don't get the chance again. And I think that was very good advice. And it did that and further built confidence and successes and kind of put it like, hey, you know what? Now I'm on this. I need to perform at a higher level. And I think that with maybe kind of the back and a good foundation, it, it, it really was a good message that if sometimes if we don't push ourselves or go to the kind of the next level, we don't really know what we could do. Right. And, Absolutely. and if you play it safe, you're... Uh, you know, it's easy to play it safe, but you're never going to know if you don't push yourself from our perspective. No, Did you ever think you'd be in sales? Yeah. yeah, I think it comes natural. It's something I also like because I think there's a lot of psychology in sales as well. If you're doing consultative selling, really of getting to know the customer's needs get, and finding a solution to that and not trying to sell a pre-canned thing. But what are your needs? What and what are those? How could we have a solution that we could find something creative? Because I think there are sometimes out of the box creative solutions to things particularly in this industry, right? Which is yeah. very difficult. Well, so it sounds like your dad was a very, very smart individual as well. What was his name, Chris? My dad's name was Masood Hussani. Masood? Yep. Masood. Yeah, very, very good uh, piece of advice there. And you took it, you ran with it, and uh, you've made a whole career out of out of that. So uh, congratulations to you. Um, yeah. There's a lot of sales reps and people in the commercial area that are listening to us. Is there like any kind of secret to what you would think, especially in this industry, especially now that's getting kind of tougher and tougher? And, and in Miami that I know it's a very competitive market when you started. Yeah, I mean, uh, it has changed. I know we're getting it probably into the pandemic part of the conversation. The past two years, I don't think anybody who has been in this industry, no. whether it's five years, 30 years, mm. has seen this. And so I don't think there was a blueprint for it. So I would, and there have been a lot, of, unfortunately, a lot of pain associated with it in terms of operational and, 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 and all of that. So I think in terms of the sales, it just, it comes down to a few basic things that it, it makes it sound easier by being basic uh, than what they really are, because it's really hard to do with the discipline. I think it's, first of all, it's knowing your products for the solutions and knowing your customers. I think it's also asking a lot of open-ended questions and trying to be consultative selling for our customers to try to sometimes find those creative solutions. And a lot of sales on the carrier, from my perspective, is the internal sales, right? It's all these internal stakeholders. How do you help on behalf of the customer to help the, the customer navigate the company, particularly as you're a global company with a lot of offices, a lot of moving parts, and help with that? And it's the constantly being in between. It's true account management, from my perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially with the... Um, yeah the scope of global supply chain, right? It's tons, tons of moving parts. Is there, um, in your career, or since you've started in logistics or supply chain, is there like a specific or a key moment that, that you thought this was very strategic or, or, or a moment that you were mostly proud of since, since you started? What, what were you most proud of since, since you started yeah. this industry? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I really liked when I was a sales rep and I was that for quite a while and I really got it. I felt I had good relationships and was able to be successful in that. But I would say really, and I didn't think so at the time, when I got the opportunity to move into management, where it was less about me and more about the team and finding the strategy, the, the cohesion, building the culture of the team, helping mentor and, and have maybe some of the more junior in their career or less experienced in the industry, not have to go through the same mistakes I have and, and teach them the shortcuts and empowering and engaging them. And the reward from that, from my perspective, is something that I really can't place. And I, I, I didn't realize I would find so much joy out of it. And it's something I really really, really like. It's the role of a coach, right? And uh, and I'd say that I'm pretty proud of that. And I'd like to believe, and hopefully my team will say the same, that we have a great culture. We all get along. We work well collaboratively, no sharp elbows, this kind of stuff. And we could all win. For people to win, others don't have to fail. I like that. Yeah. And you know, Chris, we love it at Vector. We love working with you. So it's it's a pleasure to have you on here to talk about, give you the opportunity to talk about your culture, your work environment, things like that. Can you tell us anything more about how HAPAG is different or unique within the steamship line or transportation industry? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, obviously, we're a very large organization with over 14,000 employees, hundreds of offices all over the world. Uh, and I do think that there's, all, I, I would say what really separates us is our culture. And we have really, particularly locally, we have really, really great leadership. And it's really the culture is what's the glue that keeps us together. So I'd say in terms of the culture, uh, it's really strong in terms of coaching and, de- coaching and development, in terms of a commitment to excellence, in terms of open communication and trust. Uh, and it creates a really, really good environment and particularly that we empower, engage and not micromanage and give the tools and say, hey, here's the goal. Here's how we want to get there. Of course, there's coaching and development, how to do it, but not to necessarily micromanage because usually I think micromanagement comes through a lack of trust. And if you have the right employees and, 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 and you, you should trust them and we have to give those opportunities to do that. So I'd say that's a big thing. And another thing I'd say that is really good on the tool side, we have really great visibility into our costs. Our, uh, there's empowerment on the sales team in order to make decisions. Of course, there's certain things checked by our trade management on the sales side and to go after different businesses and be agile. So I'd say there's that compared to some of my uh, experience with some other carriers. No, that makes uh, sense. And hey, um, and you can tell. I mean, I'm sure that people that are listening to this interview and people that have had the pleasure of working with uh, not only HAPAC, but some of the other steamship lines, you can start to kind of pinpoint what uh, the culture of each organization is. And and you're, I think... Uh, very, very, uh, I guess, on point when it says uh, coaching and trusting and very open and visibility and excellence. And I think yeah. you're right. And probably uh, that's why uh, I think a lot of companies like working with you guys because of that culture that you have uh, you have been uh, developing and you continue to develop. So thank you so much. No, I mean, it's a process. We're not where we'd like to be. And, you know, one of our, our, our goals is to be number one for quality and we're not there, right? It's been, it's, it's difficult, but we're determined to get there. And there's, you know, other stuff we're doing in order to uh, put us on that, on that map to, to get there. 
So you briefly talked a little about the pandemic, and and of course we're going to bring it up because uh, it was, uh, as you said, very unexpected. No one was ready. One of those uh, incredible worldwide historic events, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the biggest challenges, and how did you, uh, your team, and and Hapak kind of overcame it? Yeah. Uh, so what I would say is, and and some of what I'm going to say is my perspective. So it's not necessarily right. official Hapak ones. So right. That's my disclaimer. I'd say in the beginning, I think most thought that in the very beginning, not expected is that we're all going to take an insane hit. There's going to be maybe companies going out of business. We didn't know. So there was probably some degree of that kind of a stance. And initially there was a dip. And then overall, and again, here's my perspective. I follow different economists. I'm not an economist or (laughs) a lot of Larry Summers, stuff like that. It does seem to me, just looking back, the response to the pandemic, right or wrong, not making a judgment, I know where we had to do it, with everything closing down, funneled all the demand really in one mainstream of purchasing, which is online and retail. And then you throw in extra stimulus for needed reasons, and there was a huge surge in demand, probably in a just-in-time infrastructure in the U.S. in terms of that. And it, it has led to a lot of obviously operational challenges and demand surges and spikes in areas that one wouldn't expected. And then the need to accommodate that. And then with the vessel, you know, the vessels not being uh, lingering out because of that demand not coming in, it's creating shortages, rates are going up. So it's been very, very challenging. And I, I, I'd say, obviously, on the good side, there was a lot of revenue associated with it which is good for security, but on the same time, there's a lot of pain for our customers. A lot of on the, you know, we get to know our customers such as you and, and, and we take it as also personal and it doesn't always feel good. Hey, there could be revenue, but there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of extra work. There was a lot of uh, un, un, unsatisfied customers for a lot of reasons. And, uh, and, and that part is, is not ideal, but I do hope and think just almost going off the analogy of a hurricane that sometimes what could come good after a tragedy is that you stress test it and you build yep. something. So if there's another one going in the future, the reaction to it, and there's a learning lesson. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you think about when, when you talked about joining Evergreen um, and then later HAPAG, thinking about where things come from and how they get there. If there's a moment or a period of time where so many eyes worldwide were focused, like where's my stuff? The pandemic really put more eyes on an environment that was really stretched to its max with capacity. So like you HAPAG and your customers like us, we had to have a lot more conversations to understand why things were the way they were. But then we also had to have them with our customers who didn't really understand. They were even further removed from the how, how things work process. So it was definitely of the learning process, I would argue, for for everybody within the supply chain. Um, and hopefully, I think now people are a little bit more aware of the process. So mm-hmm. you never want to feel like you're making excuses, but there were just some things where I think it was harder to explain to everybody where that domino fell and, you know, mm-hmm. we ended up. I agree. I think in general, people are more aware of supply chain, logistics, ocean shipping, and everything that has to do with uh, moving products from one point uh, to the other. So I think that that's another 
benefit, I guess, or, or silver lining from such a horrible pandemic, right? People are yeah. just more aware of what it entails to ship products around. Yeah, I guess one could have argued before, hey, you know what? Now that everybody knows, it was probably for the wrong reasons, right? <laughs> right. For, 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 right. Ch- for challenge. It's kind of like the silent unsung hero before. Right. Like Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I will say there's less people's eyes that glaze over when they ask you, like, what do you do now versus before the pandemic? Because you're like, I work in transportation, logistics, or supply chain before they were like, and how about that baseball game or something? Like <laughs> yeah, Whereas yeah, I feel yeah. like now they're like, oh, you know, a light bulb goes off. So, um, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. it's a definite shift. But, you know, one of the ways that, that we've worked closer with you and your team is working to help the, the people of Ukraine um, in the past, you know, six, seven months. I would love for you to talk to our listeners and tell them a little bit about kind of what you guys are doing kind of maybe internally, but also what you have done as part of our initiative um, to yeah. help in the region. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, this initiative on the personal level is really, really near and dear to my heart. I met my, my wife is Ukrainian. We met in Kiev while I was working in Hamburg and my in-laws are still there They're in a city called Zhytomyr, wow. which is about 85 miles west of Kiev. Wow. So they're still there and I have a lot of friends there as well. And I've been there many times. So there's also kind of that uh, element to it. But what in terms of what we're doing, first of all, obviously, a lot of credit and kudos to Vector with the purpose-driven organization that you are and what you've done for Ukraine and sending the relief shipments and uh, us partnering up locally with you on, on a few of those shipments. First of all, it was really personally rewarding and we're really happy for that. So there's, of course, what we've done with you. We've done internal drives in just America in terms of company matches for all the money being uh, being sent there. We have our, for our personal colleagues, we had an office in Odessa, relocated them and their families to any of our offices anywhere uh, in Europe or different areas they like to go, obviously, took care of everything to set them up. We also have done a lot of not only fundraising, but relief with our colleagues at the border, uh, you know, with supplies and, and, and that stuff's ongoing. And there's obviously, and sometimes it's also hard to see the full scope because we're such a big organization. We'll see different articles of other stuff being done, but I only will have a small view of it. But uh, we've been, you know, a strong supporter of that and, uh, and, and as well as many other, uh, I'd say, initiatives. Right. Well, are they, um, speaking of additional initiatives, we know that HAPAC has a very purpose-driven organization and, of course, a great culture, as you mentioned. Are there any other particular charitable organizations that, that you'd like to share or any other, I guess, purpose-driven initiatives, as you mentioned, uh, that you that you guys actively participate in right now? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there are a lot. And quite candidly, I only have visibility to some of them because a right. lot of them are in, I mean, there's stuff globally and the stuff we're doing in North America. In North America, besides that, of course, there's definitely feeding the homeless. There's different stuff for mentoring the youth. Uh, in, in Hamburg, there's a lot of stuff also for a lot of uh, a, a lot of migrants who come over, not only from Ukraine, from anywhere of doing that. Initiatives for women to help them in the workforce, giving different trainings uh, and, and, and so forth. Diversity and inclusion is a huge part of us, uh, part of our organization. To, to purposely go and outreach where traditionally may, maybe just like, for example, me, I randomly fell into the logistic industry. How do we go ahead 
and penetrate into different communities that maybe would be isolated from it. So there's a lot of these different things going on. And, and, uh, and, and again, I have a, even a very small visibility to all of them just because of our, our, our scale. A big push for sustainability as well, I've heard, right? I mean, there's a huge, huge kind of uh, initiative huge. for That's one of our major pillars. Yeah, sustainability is really, really important. How do we be green? How do you be more efficient? How do you, uh, how do we save the environment? Which you know, some may argue it's a it's a race to do so, right? So that's a huge part. We actually a lot of our new vessels, new builds coming out are uh, are really environmentally friendly with the latest technology. Well, so we covered kind of the whiplash effect of the pandemic and how that really was a stress test for the logistics industry and how it affected. HAPAG um, specifically, vector mm-hmm. two we talked about, um, and a little bit about Ukraine. Kind of switching gears a little, uh, you know, the the industry and there's trends and things are changing. What what are you seeing on your side? What do you see the next quarter, next year? Any words of wisdom, insight, you know, from an insider that you might be able to share with us in our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say it's probably not a surprise when we hear all the doom and gloom about economic news and so forth about stocks being full in terms of uh, in, in terms of ordering. We are starting to see a deterioration in certain uh, in certain capacity and all of that on particularly on TP, but on some other TP westbound the import trade and some other trades. So we're starting to see uh, some more space. We're seeing stuff open up. We're seeing more competition. Uh, in in terms of lanes and and certain market, we're having to adjust to the market. I would say, uh, obviously, it's you know in terms of what we could expect. I think on the financial side, we'll end uh, quite well still because it's still elevated from a year ago. But I think things will start to eventually normalize, and they're they're starting uh, probably already. Uh, timeline: Anyone knows anything could happen. A black swan event right. could come out. But it does seem like now uh, things are shifting quite a bit. And hopefully with that comes stability as well, though. And that's the good would be the good part for the customer and then and the supply chain and all of that. So hopefully, hopefully we'll get some uh, stability. Um, and, and I totally agree with what you said. Uh, we're running a little bit out of time. It's been an amazing conversation with you. Uh, quick question uh, also for the uh, people that are trying to come into logistics for the younger people that are graduating and also trying to join supply chain or logistics, what would be a good advice uh, from you to to try to succeed in this uh, industry? Well, I would say I think a really good thing. Let's say they're either still in college or early in their career. I think it's good to start to get your foot in uh, in the door in the industry, whether it's with uh, you know whatever logistics company, whether it's a carrier or NVO or BCO, maybe through an internship to see if it's something you like. I think one thing that's that's really good in uh, our educational system in the US, we have electives. So you can see, hey, maybe I thought I like it, but maybe I don't. Maybe you find out you love it and you go that way. And I think that's probably a a good way to do that. And then I would say also to find a mentor, find somebody that you trust with experience in that and to give it to you straight. And I think that'll really speed up one's progression and, and, and knowledge. Good advice, thank you so much. How can our listeners connect with you, learn more about HAPAG, reach out to you? Yeah. Okay. I'd say there's a few ways. I'd say LinkedIn is really good. I'm on LinkedIn, Christopher Usani, and also HAPAG Lloyd uh, is on LinkedIn, and I post a lot of different things on there as well. So I think that's a great way to 
keep up to date, to keep on a lot of the initiatives we talk, whether they're charitable, whether they're uh, environmental or whatnot. And obviously our website, hatbag-lloyd.com, you can see all our services and, uh, and, and learn more about us. And feel free to reach out to me and say hello. Chris, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you once again for taking the time and uh, talking to us today. We have really uh, enjoyed this conversation. And for everyone else out there listening to uh, Logistics with Purpose, if you like conversations like the one we had today with Chris, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of Logistics with Purpose.